Hello and welcome back to Mad Get Radio, episode number 22. We're back to discuss all things Scottish Championships. They have come, they have gone, we have a winner and we have multiple losers. Most of the guests on this show will be the losing part, but we do have a winner. We are joined again by the one and only, it's Tom Uden. Hello! And as always, he's the penful to my danger mouse, it's Paul. What's going on guys? I was more than expecting you to say something like, I'm talking of losers, here's Paul. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that would be brutal. Good way to start. We won. Come on, we've only been going for 30 seconds. Let's just start again. <laughs> Damn, missed opportunity. So, if you've listened to our tournament wrap-up shows in the past, which I'm hoping you have, because someone's listening to them on SoundCloud and it can't all be Martin Bruno. <laughs> what we normally do is the kind of standard blow-by-blow accounts where we talk about each of our games, but we've come to the conclusion that that's a bit boring. So, we're going to try this new format because we're always, you know, on the edge of innovation and podcast stuff at Mad Good Radio. Yeah. Trendsetters, of course, because we are the number one ninth age podcast, no matter what Jack Chapman says. <laughs> one in the UK, and Scotland's going to leave that soon, so... Oh, new avenue for us, new title. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so, wow, this got political. Um, so, we're going to take a more kind of general approach. We've got a bunch of questions lined up to try and get our overall thoughts. We're going to talk a bit more generally about who we think... It's on top in terms of armies just now, who we think is struggling. And then we've got a few side questions and stuff that will lead on naturally from that. So we're hoping that you'll enjoy this. Please let us know if you do. Please let us know if you don't. Tommy Tucker, please no more pictures of your genitals. <laughs> and with that, uh, let's talk about Scottish Championships. So, Paul, do you want to run through the standings? How did everything finish? So what we're going to do is the top three, the podium spots, coming in number one. Champion of Scotland is Tom Uden. Undying Dynasties, 81 points. Solid. Monstrous. Lost your last game, Tom. What the fuck happened there? Uh, basically, going into the last game, I needed to not lose 20 0 to win the event. So I said to, I mean, we can go into this more later, but basically, I said to Gareth, listen, mate, I'm really sorry, but I'm just going to be playing to conserve points here because I didn't want to be the guy that decided to go out to try to win. Uh, win all these games and then get 20 and lose the podium, lose the top spot. So I went for the boring option, I'm afraid, and just played sort of super defensively. So I put myself into a position where I was never going to win the game, but I knew that I'd be able to just hold off and not lose it. Uh, so I just sacked the objective and the chaff to Gareth and let him walk away with a fairly decent win uh, for him. And, you know, again, the more than one point that I needed to lock it up. Nice. It's those kind of decisions, Tom, that it's probably why you won the event. <laughs> <laughs> I will get into it more later about that kind of generic thing. That was actually that was actually going to be one of my sort of points to bring up. Yeah, that sounds good. Okay. Oh, number two, Jack Austin, 75 points. Also, Undying Dynasties. People are probably sensing about that. <laughs> well They're not. No, no, he lost 20 nil. Did he lose 20 nil? Yeah. And he still came second. What does that well, say he, about the rest of the field? Well, he, he was playing me for the 20 nil. <laughs> You do not OP if no, you no. <laughs> And rounding out the top spots, we have Tim Bocknick with Beast Herds, not Undying Dynasties. So that's a bit of a surprise there, I think. Tim, you're an absolute machine. We love you. 74 points, very good. Fantastic. Uh, very nice. Uh, considering the top six spots are all like undead lists, it's nice to see someone that isn't raising shit every time. <laughs> a power gamer. <laughs> wait, 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 wait. <laughs> Tim still did have shamanism, raising free, but his stuff's free, you know. That's Everybody true. Raises. That's true. 
So we had some other winners. We had Best Sports, which was won by uh, the one and only Papa Deej. Papa Deej. Papa Deej. Uh, Papa Deej, it's maybe worth saying that he came last. I'm sure he'll appreciate that mention. (laughs) (laughs) With a a mighty 19 points. Well, I feel like it was made at the tournament, the point that, you know, he he lost and came last, but he was still, like, super fun to play against. Like, a lot of people would have been like... Yes, a lot of people would have been super salty, but everyone that plays Deej always has a good time, so... Yeah. More than deserved. He came up and laughed at me after he said... after he got the, um... after he got the spoon. Because he broke it within, like, ten seconds. <laughs> <laughs> like, he, he hadn't even got back to the place he was standing. But anyway, uh, I was talking to him, and he, uh, he laughed at me because I printed him for the podium. So he called me rubbish, <laughs> despite the fact that he was the one... <laughs> That was a pretty good moment for the event. The uh, the prizes were all 3D printed, and that particular prize, I think I'm right in saying, was a sword in a scabbard. Yeah, it's and like yeah. a sword going through a skull. Yeah, so Deej thought it was a real sword and decided to pull it from the handle and just pulled the handle right off. So, yeah, it lasted <laughs> about 10 seconds. Uh, and the other big prize of the weekend was the best painted, and that went to Drew and his vermin swarm, which were lovely. It was very well deserved. Very nice army. Yeah, you guys hyped it up a little bit last last episode because I hadn't seen it before or how good it was, and yeah, you you were completely right. It's it's stunning. This is the thing, though. Like, I don't think well, I certainly hadn't seen that army, but he always brings a new army, and it's always amazingly painted. Yeah, I hate people like that. It's really depressing. It's the yeah. speed in which he does it as well. Yeah, exactly. I don't mind if you're like a good painter and then had to like you know you put your time in at the mines, just sweating away at your desk for hundreds of hours yeah. painting. The highlights, but no, when you do it as quick as most people just sort of do a spray and dip job, sort of. I agree. Yeah. We should push them at the hobby. We'll discuss sort that of. later on. Sort of, true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, I, I met him for the first time. He's a lovely bloke. I thought it was, it was absolutely grand, but you know, still sort of. Yeah, no, it was nice. Um, so I've got best in race here, so we'll quickly run through them before we discuss the ins and outs. So in no particular order, because this isn't in alphabetical order, uh, we've got best story in ancient, smart greensill. Uh, best Vermin Swarm was Drew. Best Inferno Dwarves was Ollie. Best Empire Sunstall was the new Scotland coach. It's the one and only Matt Paris. Best Dread oh. Elves was uh, Monroe Armitage. Best Orson Goblins was Rob Cousins. Best Sylvan Elves was Josh Burns. Best UD was the one and only Tom Uden. <laughs> best Demon Legions is the prize winner that is Jordan Bladen. Wow. <laughs> best King of Ectane was Ed Murdoch. Because Ed just could resist winning a trophy at his own tournament. <laughs> Best Vampire Covenant was the man, the myth, the legend, the one and only Gareth Barton. Best Beast Hairs was unsurprisingly the sheep shagger himself, it's Tim Botnick. And courtesy of myself, Best Warriors of the Dark Gods was the one and only <laughs> Madgate Radio star, Paul McNeil. Dude, when you came over and told me that, I, my instant thought was like, how fucking bad has the other two warrior players done this event? <laughs> That means I have won something. Kevin uh, Stone did alright, didn't he? He did until he played me. Bollock. Yeah, exactly. Got the last game. Yeah, it was like literally the only thing that would have meant that Kev didn't win best in race was if he lost 20 0 to me and he lost. Yeah. See, Kev done what I done, just play super defensively. Oh, it was so funny though because like. Kevin and I had a really good game, but like that was a horrendous matchup for him. Like, it was just so bad. And that was the only thing he said. Like when it, We got to about turn two, and it was obvious that this was going to go badly for him. He was like, 
I'm going to lose this. I'm going to lose best in race. How did this happen? <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, I'm waving in the background being like, hey. <laughs> <laughs> so that was good fun. Um, if you want to find out any other tournament standings where everyone finished up, you can check them out on Tourney Keeper. If anyone's interested, Paul, where did you finish up? Uh, I finished 26th. 26th. I finished 10th by some miracle because I had a horrendous day one. Snuck into the top 10 day two. Um, you were not happy at the end of day one. That I was, was, it, was a bad thing. it was it was a bad day to be an Andrew. So that's all the results and stuff. Like I said, if you want to f- check any of them out, uh, jump on Tourney Keeper or jump on the forum. But what we're going to try and do on this show is talk about things more generally, take a more thematic approach. So we've got a bunch of questions, but the first of which, which I'm sure you're all interested <laughs> in, is uh, particularly for Tom. Mm-hmm. Did you do any specific prep for the event? Because obviously you're a winner. We want to know the winning mentality so we can copy and paste it. Well, I'll tell you what, the the prep that I did for this event was sort of just, I didn't change my lists at all. Like the list that I submitted had been the list that I played five, six games with already. Okay. And I think that's probably the best prep that you could do for uh, an event, is if you want to do well at the event, you're going to need to know your list. So I'd say that you should have as many practice games as possible with your list before you go to the tournament, which is tough for some people because, you know, a lot of people, tournaments are kind of their only games. Yeah. So you want to bring something that's maybe a little bit more fun or a little bit more experimental, and there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. That you can have a great tournament with 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 those lists like that. The last tournament that I went to, I took a list that I played one game with, and I didn't do as well at that event as I did this one. And I think it's just down to knowing knowing your list and being comfortable with it. Yeah, that's important. Also, just reading the lists. Like this is something that is really easy for some people, like myself, and there's a couple other people in the UK, like uh, Jake Cortine that. Uh, just absolutely love reading lists and theory hammering. Wonder how I'd play that list. How would I beat that one? And et cetera, et cetera. So for people like Jake and I, it's, it's less of a chore, but for other people, it can be a bit daunting to just have a whole load of lists to read through. Maybe you don't know the rules. Maybe you don't know what the unit entries are. So then you've got to open up their, uh, another PDF with the army book. And then you've got to try and sort of like think through all the potential variables. And it is tough, but that's what you need to do if you want to get better at the game. Um, a lot of a lot of times people ask me just sort of what 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 would you say that the most important skill is in terms of being like a a good player or, or like a, an aspiring good player? What do they do that other people don't? And the best answer for that is that you could look at the matchup when you get to the table and know is this a winning or a losing matchup? What do I need to do in order to maximize that win? What do I need to do in order to mitigate that loss? Yeah. If you can do that in the 10 seconds that you've got between looking at the person's list and then kind of starting, then more power to you. But it will really help if you've already read the lists because you read all the lists uh, prior to the tournament. So you kind of know, oh, it's that guy's warrior list. Yeah, oh, yeah, he does have that. He's got four chariots, but I think I did blah, blah, blah. You know, that, that's, that's really what will help you get through the, through the event. It's, it's just knowledge and understanding the matchup. So what level of detail do you go through lists? Because uh, I'm sure Paul's done this as well, where you're getting, you're kind of getting in, in the mindset for your event. You've got the lists, you've read through them. Mm. I've gone, I've done events where I've gone through every single unit entry and wrote notes on it painstakingly. Um, I've written down like everything's weapon skill, defensive skill, you know, the saves and stuff at the side of the army list. I don't even need to look at the book. And then I've done yeah. other events where I kind of just skimmed through all the lists and not thought much about it. So where where do you fall in that? Um, well, again, it's one of those like six, not success, pre success, but you know, if you put the work in, that you, so you just mentioned that the first tournament, the first situation where you went through them all, you were the fine tooth comb, really looking up everything, 
I bet that really helped the second time when you were looking through because you already knew what half the units did because you'd already put the time in kind of stuff. You would think that, wouldn't you? <laughs> <laughs> hey, you came tenth, you know. Um, <laughs> but uh, for this one, again, like, I didn't need to do too much because there weren't any crazy, really wacky off-the-wall lists. There were a couple, but there weren't. They were, they were interesting because of the selections, not because of the weird combos that they made. Yeah. So for this one, it wasn't actually too bad. Also, because I was doing the podcast beforehand, um, I, I kind of like, <laughs> I had homework to do that. I had to sit down to read the four matchups that I was assigned. So I thought, well, I'm looking through them anyway. I might as well look up the rest of them. Again, so you I, would think that would help us, but it doesn't seem it. <laughs> <laughs> there is always a difference. I mean, that's the problem that you've got the knowledge of what to do and then there's actually doing it. Yeah. Like I was actually talk, talking to Jordan, Jordan Bladen, who I, I predicted will lose his first game, and in fact won at 20-0. Um, <laughs> so we were talking outside about how his next game was against Jack Austin, who also won 20-0. So we were saying, right, this is how to play against Tomb Kings. We mentioned the tactics about what we should do and how the best way to approach it was, and he said that he talked to somebody about it before, so he did know what he was supposed to do. But then I look over at the table after deployment and see that he's done none of what we've just discussed. He's not deployed in the way that we kind of agreed was the correct way to do it, and had kind of ballsed up a little bit and didn't end up losing the game. So I think there is a there is a certain amount of like when you make a plan, once you've actually in the cold light of day gone through and looked at what would work, it's actually doing that. It's not deciding, oh my guts telling me something to do something else right now, or oh, I've got a weird funny feeling about this. It's like, trust yourself when you were being analytical rather than in the heat of the moment. Okay. So again, like I'll use, use Paul, for example. If he says, oh, I need to make sure that my all my uh, random movers are within range of the guard that allows me to re-roll the moves. And I also need to make sure that they don't all barrel up too fast turn one. So I need to make sure that I'm re-rolling high rolls. Knowing that is very different from putting the thing models down on the board, rolling like a 10 or 11 and going, wee, I want to run, and then just allowing your models to, to rush off. It's like a discipline thing. Yeah, I don't do that. Yeah, no, I noticed. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> for everybody who's wondering, that's exactly what happened in our turn one on our game. <laughs> that was glorious. <laughs> go, well, Francis, go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so don't do that. Uh, so I think having a, like a game plan that you follow is really important. And again, you're not going to be able to have time to have a game plan against like literally every single list that you're reading because even at a fairly small event like this one, you know, which was under 40 people, there's still whatever it was, 37 other lists to read. And you can't know what your opponent's going to do, but you can generically look at it, figure out kind of what the list is going to do. You know, oh, this one's going to try to run at me. This one's going to try to get around me. This one's going to stand off and shoot me or whatever it is. Kind of figure out if you were playing against your list with this list, what would you do to win it? Mm. And then kind of think about, well, how, how do I stop that guy's plans from happening? You know, you'll always have generic ideas about how to counter super aggression, how to counter you know, avoidance and everything like that. So it's just, you know, getting your, um, getting your ABCs in line up, really, making sure that you've got the basics down, that you know what you should be doing so that you're in the actual game, not thinking about the greater picture. You're able to focus on the small specific things, what's happening on a turn-by-turn basis. Okay. Paul, how does your prep compare? <laughs> it's got this mental image of a man sitting in his pants scratching himself. That's like <laughs> the difference. No, to be fair, I think after I had been down at Art of War yeah, uh, in Bristol, and after that event, there were a number of things I wanted to try. Um, looking forward to ETC. So part of my mindset going into this event was 
building a list to test things. Saying that, when everyone had signed up, I tried to kind of get an idea of the likely armies, because generally people will play the same thing. So I tried to kind of put that list idea into a, like a kind of wider context. So it looked yep. like there was going to be like a lot of armor in the tournament. So I was looking at my list and saying, right, can I deal with that? And if I can't, should I make changes now? Or do I have to bear that in mind going in that I'm going to have to play a certain way? Really beyond that, it was just coming up with a list at least three weeks beforehand and just trying to get as many games in as possible. And then, as we've said, going through all the lists, making notes. Like, I'm someone that does that. Like, I will write down on a bit of paper what all the units do. And then I will, in my head, come up with the matchups that I want that come turn two, turn three, when things are getting into combat. What do I want fighting my opponent's list? So that's the theory. And that's what I go in trying to do. But in reality, on the day, that doesn't always work out for various reasons. If you just get out deployed or you make a mistake and you screw yourself up or something like that. But I'm someone that generally needs to play against an army rather than just read the book. Like, for me, reading alone isn't enough. Mm. And I actually have to play against something to fully appreciate maybe a, a particular rule or how a, a specific unit works on the table. Why we ended up grudging our first game, wasn't it? That you hadn't played UD yet, and you wanted to yeah. know it before. I wanted to experience the filth firsthand. I wanted to see what everyone was mourning about. And? <laughs> and and <boys>. they were... <laughs> no, it was a good game. It was a fun game. But yeah, like for me going into the event, it was really um, a testing ground just yeah. to try different things because there was a lot of things in the list that I hadn't run before. So, but yeah, typically that's how I, I approach an event. There isn't really any anything beyond that. I think a lot of the things that Tom was talking about, you can tell, just come from experience yeah. and being able to look at a list and thinking, right, I know what that does, I know what that does. There's you just build up that um, degree of being familiar with what typically gets brought to tournaments. Yeah, you have a bit of a file base in your head. Um, but you mentioned like, that you kind of created your list with the meta in mind as well. And that's like, that's a really important approach for an event. Like, how, how well did you know, well, how well did you kind of guess the meta? Like, you've, you've obviously got the list of people coming, so you know maybe some of your friends what they're going to be bringing, but did you have a general idea that? Uh, typically, like, typically the guys that were coming from the club, I knew what they were going to have, bar maybe Monroe. Um, who hasn't been playing in the club as much recently. So his list was a little bit of a surprise. But beyond that, I think everyone's list was pretty much what I expected. But yeah, it's like something we'll talk about maybe later, but there are a lot of armies that just aren't represented in our club. And so mm -hmm. actually getting the practice in beforehand is really difficult. So someone turning up with, like say, an Ogre Khan army, okay, you've maybe played Ogres before, but this person's bringing a completely different list which units to do completely different things. So it's it's really hard for all you've maybe read the list and, and you've looked at the stats and stuff to really know how to play against it effectively. Like you typically need to I find I need to play against the list maybe two or three times before I get a good handle on how the units operate with one another. So I would say like just looking at player names as opposed to the armies initially, I think I got maybe like three quarters of the army picks right but there were a bunch of people that mainly people from down south that were coming up that brought different things so for the most part it was okay this is an interesting part you kind of mentioned a couple of reasons why you might go to a tournament 
you know, I, I was, Andy asked me about prep. It was obviously with the mindset of sort of somebody being super competitive and wanting to do well and everything. But a lot of people go to tournaments and their only sort of hope and dream is to play five different armies of people that they haven't played yet. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, they're like prep for a tournament for some people might just be, well, I painted my army. Um, because that's all they kind of care about, you know, yeah. and I think that, that's perfect. I absolutely think that you should go to ninth age events for whatever personal reasons you have. If it's that you've got, you know, four screaming kids at home and you just need to get away for the weekend, then great. Um, then that's, that's why you come to the hobby, then that's fine. Like, there's so many reasons why you'd want to come to and play an event and none of them are more valid than any of the others. Yeah. You know, so we'll, we'll talk about being competitive and trying to, you know, prep from a competitive edge, but that doesn't mean that you have to do any of these things or that indeed you're doing it wrong if you're not. What about you, Andrew? What did you do for the, this particular event? Anything different? No, not really for this one. Like, the list that I took, um, the double horror list was one that I've basically playing since, like, NDETC. Yeah. So, I mean, it's gone through various iterations, but it's essentially the same idea. So, so I was really comfortable with it. In terms of prep, I didn't actually get a lot of time because I've just been really busy. So I kind of I read through all the lists, made some brief notes, and then obviously we did the podcast, so uh, mm. that definitely helped because it kind of forced me to sit down and think about stuff. But I didn't feel like I did as much like prep that. as I've done before. I like how your list of like what do you do for tournament prep? Part of it is just start a podcast and then do <laughs> and that. force me to think about it. <laughs> well, that explains my approach to tech, which we'll maybe discuss later on, which is vastly different to anything I've done before. Uh. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't feel like I'm even put as much time in, but that's because of just shit, shit's been happening. But I didn't actually feel that it, it cost me that much, and I think part of that's experience as well. Like I'm def, I feel like I'm definitely getting better at being able just to look at a list and go right, okay, so I can't fight that unit. How do I not fight that unit? I've got to kill that stuff and chaff that. And but yeah. I think that's just an experience thing that you just get that once you've played, you know, a hundred, two hundred, three hundred, four hundred games. It just starts to get ingrained in you. But yeah, no, I definitely feel that if you put the time in, you get better results because you know it inside out. But I know that a lot of people struggle to get the time in. And really, I think actually just going to tournaments is the best experience that you can get because you're forced to play different people, different armies. Yeah, absolutely. I think that you, we're talking about like prep specifically for the Scottish event. And, and it's it's kind of hard because there isn't necessarily specific prep. Like Yeah. Like Paul mentioned, you can look at the names and you know that one, but for the most part, you'll prepare for any tournament like you prepare for any other. You know, there's, there's, I think there's one in Germany actually where there's free beer, so you might want to prep, you know, <laughs> uh, just <laughs> different, different, different approach. But you going to tournaments, you're right, is is an absolute blast, and there's all sorts there. You're just not like you're going to go to a tournament and have a horrible two days because you just play super competitive gamey people. That just won't happen. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. I think it's different as well. Like if you're your situation, like, you were one of the TOs, right? Yeah. So if you're actually, like, organizing <laughs> an event, and you know on the day you've got a bit of running around to do, and like, it's different, it takes away some of that opportunity to prepare to the same extent beforehand. Like, obviously there's some advantages. You get to see everyone's list first, etc. But mm-hmm. it's, I think it's harder when you're actually organizing the event as well. Yeah, I kind of like, I quite like it, though. Um... Because it almost takes pressure off you. Well, you've always got that excuse, right? Uh, yeah. yeah, I think that's just like the lazy part of my head that I'm like, oh, I can't possibly look at lists because I had to make a PDF today and that was exhausting, <laughs> so I can't do any more. Um, but yeah, I think that almost if you don't 
do no this is this is just pure laziness i'm i'm like i'm thinking about what i'm saying and it is because i'm I, I was going to say like if you don't do as much prep you enjoy the event more but that's not true that's just the lazy part and andrew trying to justify why he's not done any prep for tech <laughs> rationalize it yeah, yeah. <laughs> like when you were doing the exams at school he's like oh you don't want to over revise because then just fill your head with stuff that won't be in the exam exactly yeah it's the exact same thing um so we've already touched on it but i think it's probably worth discussing a bit more detail about the actual list building so mm. when we all signed up to the event did you design your list with any like particularly particular goals or themes or styles in mind like paul you obviously talked about how you kind of tried to predict the meta a wee bit but you're also trying to test stuff out um, yeah how successful do you think you were in doing um that? after bristol there were just certain things in the book that I wanted to try regardless. So I wanted to try a big unit of Feldrax as an alternative to like Chosen Knights or regular Warrior Knights or something. Um, cause they seem to be getting more popular in the meta. And I think with some of the changes in the book, they offset some of the weaknesses that you can encounter with kind of those other units. Yeah. And there were other things in the book that I wanted to try, like the, the, being able to take a, a battle shrine as a mount for a sorcerer was like super cool. So when I was designing the list, I wanted to invest more into the irredeemable units that are in the book. And the idea was have this, the block of six wretched ones, have two forsaken ones, the guy in the shrine with the reroll item. And if you want, you can basically run that four unit brick as this unbreakable grinding thing that no one wants to get stuck on. Yeah. Or you can run them all individually if you need to. I kind of wanted to invest more in chaff. Um, so I brought more chaff than I had done in previous events. The list didn't really have like a particular theme. Um, it was more about testing things in the book. And where our tournament or your tournament was falling, it was just as the new book was coming out. Yeah. So I wasn't actually too worried about the list itself being anything that was going to form the basis of a future list for another event because I was like, the changes are coming. They potentially can be quite big and they are quite big so it was really just about testing other things in the book because like obviously we're thinking about etc and trying to build a list from like a team perspective as well so i really just wanted to cover as many bases as possible so there wasn't really a general theme in mind and because i wasn't organizing it i was just kind of going to the event more like just to have fun yeah there wasn't really a particular goal in mind it was really just to kind of test things in the book okay cool uh what about you tom Obviously, your list was a list that you'd been practicing with. Yeah, but like Paul said, though, it was just with ETC in mind. Like, it's... when when you There's obviously a big difference between team events and singles events and the kind of lists that you take for those. But within reason, like, you, they're, they're not that different. You know, the, a, a, t- a list that will do well in a singles event will probably still do well in a team event. A list that will do well in a team environment, again, will probably do well in a singles event. There's mm. some differences there for the most part, but I think if you're approaching a tournament as a kind of another step, it, like it's it's five more games to practice my list, whatever that end up will be, but the end goal being the ETC. Like If that's how you approach your tournament, then you've got two choices. You can kind of go like Paul did, and massively change kind of everything to just try out something different to just check that you're not missing anything and that you know like once you already know what's good in the book you could try out different stuff or you could do like i did which was kind of already i'm pretty sure i've tried all the different options i've kind of got it down to what i like what fits my play style there's a couple questions to do and then you make some minor tweaks yeah 
But when you're writing a list in general, you've always just got to think, or for me at least, it's kind of, well, what's, what's the strength with this army? Like, why am I playing Beast Herds over Warriors? Why am I playing Orcs and Goblins over Dark Elves? Like, what is it about my, this army that, that makes it good from where I'm sitting? And you kind of want to maximize out on that. So, like, if I was playing Infernal Dwarves, it would just be, how can I give flammable to every opposing, opposing model and flaming to all of my models? And that's kind of like a list design point of view that you're trying to make the strength of the army book work as much as possible. Yeah. You know, Beast Herds, it's, it's, you know, I'll stack as much stuff that has the Primal Fury we was to hit as, as possible because I think that's what makes the, the list strong. It's just figuring out the ancillary stuff, like what makes that work better. So, you know, again, if you're looking at Orcs and Goblins and you love the way that you can have loads of really cheap mages and really good shooting and really cheap chaff, you can easily make like a, sit-off army that is able to um, just delay everybody and ping off points. Um, so it's kind of realizing what style you want to go for, figuring out how your army specifically can achieve that, and then where the trial and error starts. So you're never going to write perfect the first time. Uh, you, you, will, you won't write a list for a tournament, play three games to practice for that tournament, and make no changes. Like You will change your list. So it's whether you do it small-scale or large-scale, really. Okay. Just out of interest, Tom, would you consider yourself an aggressive player or a defensive player? I'd say aggressive with defensive tendencies. Um, (laughs) (laughs) In general, I'm quite aggressive when I play because I I like to, you know, again, from a singles point of view, it's what I want to go out there and smash and win win the tournament. And I'm not going to do that by getting three, twelve, eight wins. Uh, Sorry, uh, five, twelve, eight wins. So I need to go out there and smash people. Hmm. Um, And then you start playing higher-end competitive stuff like the ETC, and that's where you kind of realize, like, well, that actually doesn't work all the time. And if, I, if I'm if i in a singles event and I run everything just mad aggressively forward and it doesn't work and I end up losing 18-2, it's like, oh, well, sucks to be me. That's fine. I'll play somebody who also got a rubbish game their last game next round. If you do it in a team event, you just screwed seven other people. Yeah. You've got to make sure that you're not doing that. So that's why I sort of incorporated into the game into my personal game plan, like the ability to just be a bit more patient, to sit off a bit more, to to wait for your right opportunity, to not take sort of silly risks that, again, it's just a, you know, like a generic singles event, you'd probably be happy taking. But you know, it comes down to what point of the tournament is at as well. So I'm much more likely to be way more aggressive at the beginning, which is exactly what happened. But I got, I think it was 19, 19 and 20 day one, because I just went out there trying to just get as, amass as many points as possible. And then against Gareth, I played like this super pussy, you know, how super pussy. I, I'm still a little bit ashamed of myself that I, you know, took those options kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, and the, but at the end of the day, it's you just got to do, do what you do what you need to do to win. So, yeah, I think any good player will be able to play both aggressively and defensively because you can't just play purely defensive and win a game. You've got to play defensively until your opportunity to be aggressive comes up. And if you're going to play aggressively, you can't just play aggressively from turn one because you'll get your toys taken off. You need mm. to play a little bit more cagey, a little bit more defensively at first, and then be aggressive. Interesting. <laughs> you taking notes, Paul? <laughs> no. No, I've never thought you I'm not a pre- I'm not a prepared, dedicated individual. I fly by the seat of my pants. <laughs> Paul, for your list. Yeah. Obviously, you're you're obviously trying stuff out, so it's not really applicable. But yeah. were you kind of writing it to try and be more aggressive? Not necessarily. Like okay. I don't. I'm not. Um, not any more aggressive than I would write any other list. Like I've only ever played one army, and I'm pretty convinced I'm not an inherent 
aggressive player, but playing Warriors, you kind of have to be a lot of the time. Yeah. Because there's very little options available to you otherwise. So if you're playing against a list that has decent range potential, there's no point in hanging back because there's very few ways you've got to really mitigate against taking that damage. So if you've got six health point monster, okay, you can try and be cagey with it, but if you've got nowhere to hide and you can focus that out between magic and shooting, you might lose them before combat. Yeah. So you're better pushing forward and say, right, okay, roll the dice and try and kill him. If you don't kill me, I'm charging you turn two. So, and sometimes that works and sometimes that doesn't work. But, um, really when I wrote this particular list, it wasn't written with the idea in mind that I was going to play it necessarily differently. It was just going to give me different choices and different options in game. So I think, like, bringing the irredeemable guys, they consistently get underrated by a lot of people that play against them. The Wretched Ones in particular. I don't think a lot of people bring units of six. And the, the Forsaken Ones are a little bit more common. I think people have a better idea of how to deal with them or they just avoid them because they know they're a pain in the ass. But the Wretched Ones, I think in every game I had, they did well. Either at pinning something long enough that it was depriving the opponent from getting more points than they might have done otherwise, or they were taking points. I think I had one game where they fluffed and they just didn't do what they should have done. Because they were actually fighting like an ideal target at the time and they just rolled really poorly. Right. And I think my opponent rolled really well for the, for their saves. So I wouldn't say that the list was designed to play any differently from how I would normally play in terms of, like from a, a stylistic point of view. Okay. It was really just different options and fun. Right, okay. What about you? Uh, no, I mean... No, no fun for me. No, no fun for Andrew. <laughs> Andrew doesn't play for fun. <laughs> I, know you, I know you were saying, like, because before we were talking about your list, and you yeah. said that you know it's good, but you're a little bit sick of it. Yeah, it's boring as fuck. It's, like, I don't know why I do this to myself. <laughs> because every list I write that's good is boring. And I think it's because I'm, def- I, I I'm naturally a defensive, kind of reactive player. Yeah. And I've actually been talking to Matt Perez about this. And I kind of think that I tend to write lists where... Like I can sit back and then get into the game later on. I'm not really fussed about if you weren't run at me, that's cool because I can't expect that you're going to do that anyway. But the it is a bit boring. So like for tech, so tech's this weekend, um, and I've I'm taking like a a ghoul list where everything either vanguards or has a triple march banner, and um, it's mental. There's shit running about everywhere. It's very un VC, but. I've played two games at the weekend and I really enjoyed it because it was just, it's so different to anything I've played before. Um, and I'm actually thinking now that if it does alright at tech, then that might potentially end up being an ETC list. So we'll wait and see. That's the whole point of, of all of this stuff that we've been talking about, about prepping and everything. Like, why do you do it? It's so that you can exclude options and try other ones. Yeah. That, you know, you now put that box, that, that book for, so that list from Scottish Championships, like, in the book, that's it, you're done. If you want, from like a Team Scotland point of view, if you want to have a nicely defensively-minded vampire count list that doesn't have too many matchups that can take out armor incredibly well, here's what we've got. Yeah. Now let's find we can do a crazy, mad, aggressive one that will be able to rush gun lines and swamp MSU, and let's see what we can come up with. Yeah. The options are because you've already put the work in. Yeah, I've inadvertently done a good job. Thanks, Tom. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> do you think... No, like, this is something we've kind of spoke about before in the podcast that we're like, about 
finding a list that you know works and actually playing with it consistently so that you become as effective with that list as you can. Like yeah. you, that's that's where the boredom's coming from, right? Because you play fairly regularly. Yeah. So the list that you're sick of is because you've been playing it over and over and over and over again. Yeah. I think this is a personal thing as well that I would prefer to get to a stage where I'm sick of a list but I know it inside out than to be chopping changing my list constantly and feel like I never get a grip of something. Yeah. Like, I'm one of the sad cunts that like like 100% completes games on the PlayStation and stuff like that because I need to know that I, could, I got everything. And I, mm. I think I kind of carry that mentality over into this where I've got to get to a stage where I feel like I know absolutely everything about that list. I, I did the same with the, the Empire Gunline list that I took TTC last year. Like I could have played that list in my sleep mm. because I just knew it inside out. And I, I think I've kind of got to that stage with the, the Shrieking Horror list now. But I have, like, I don't want to be playing that for another, you know, however many months. Because you can almost lose sight of the reason that we play these games, and that is for fun. Yeah, you know? exactly. <laughs> if you're not enjoying it, then you're kind of failing at the first point. Um, so you can have a list that you know is good, and that doesn't, like, you know, Smashing Fools does get boring kind of thing, that you just want to play with something different that's more fun, that just kind of gives you a bit of a mental break from it. Yeah, and that's a big that's- part of why I'm, I'm taking this list to tech, is to just kind of... <laughs> Try new stuff and yeah, can I p- push me out of my comfort zone a wee bit as well? Because the list that I'm taking to tech is a full aggro list that cannot play it defensively. So don't try, which is something that I've never done before. I've always gone either kind of defensive lists that can push out if need be, but I've never really gone full aggro before. It's going to be a good experience no matter what happens. Just as an aside to talking about being kind of frustrated with a list or being sick of playing a list. Hypothetically, if you were able to play that list against a better variety of armies and players, do you think it would be as boring? Um, I don't know. Because I think, I don't know, like, it's almost like you enjoy playing, like, I enjoy playing all you guys, because you're all my pals and we have good fun. Yeah. Um, but you also, you enjoy playing new players and new armies because it's stuff you haven't done before. But your army's always consistent, so... First Paul, like, so that would be a really good question for somebody who wasn't an undead like Liz. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that's, it's funny because when you play undead, like it's the, the style of play that you do almost never changes, and it's almost always like your opponent reacting to you. 100%. Like, even your deployments are basically the same, Yeah. Uh, because you've always got to be within your bubble. You've always got to have your chaff countermeasures in place. And I mean, I think that's... I'm a victim of this because it's the same empire. To a lesser extent, but like you've always you got to have your bubble. Leaders. Well, yeah, yeah. When you bring a gun, that like, I like, I had a set deployment, as you know, like, and I never didn't deploy like that because to Temic someone <laughs> sucks dick if it gets behind you. <laughs> so yeah, this will be fun. This is a new approach. So it's interesting hearing you guys talk about that kind of stuff because I'm kind of sticking my foot in a little bit, and we'll see if I throw a tantrum at the end of tech and go back to the screaming horrors because everything else is shit. On that note, <laughs> looking back at your list for the Scottish Championships, uh, what would you say was your MVP coming out of it? So, Paul, who took from that experimental list, who really shone bright for you? I think consistently it's the Irredeemable guys. Right. As I said, like, the six wretched ones, I mean, against the wrong thing, they're not good. And I guess that's the same for any unit. But, like, having AP zero, even against guys that have got, like, light armor and a shield can hurt. Yeah, it's, well, it's a one, third of wounds that they're saving, isn't it? So Yeah, it makes a big difference, but you can offset that a little bit with the right magical support. So I think the um, 
and the Forsaken ones. Like that was the first event that I ran double Forsaken one, and they're just really good. Yeah. I don't understand why people. I get why people might not take them if it doesn't suit a particular style of list, but I mean I've ran them in various iterations, and they're always good. So for me, the Irredeemable guys are super good, and I'm seriously looking at a list now that has two units of six, so wretched ones, and two Forsaken ones, because. They're just so hard to deal with. Just having that many wounds that are unbreakable. That many random got, movers as well. Yeah, like people have got to be really confident that they can wipe that in one go. Um, otherwise, it's just the ability to strike regardless. The, the, the Forsaken one, strength six, it's like, I played against Martin on the weekends, and he had Soaring Ancients, and he, he combo charged, I think he had all of his dinosaurs into all my random movers, like turn two. And that could have went really bad, but I mean, like, the fact that if you, if you don't kill me in round one, I've got two rounds of auto-hitting you at strength six. Yeah. And that can take a toll on, on a monster. And I think th- their, their cost is good. Like, even, like, suicide bombing two of them into, like, a 900-point, 1,000-point character on a dragon or on an alpha carnosaur or something is totally worth it. Because I, th- I think often or not, those kind of units, they kind of really like hold together a list like that's the big threat and if you can just get rid of that then yeah it makes a big difference so i think for me like they're just now like the strongest thing in the book um they just need a bit of magic behind them but you can definitely do that in the warriors book now so for me they were definitely the mvp nice what about you andy um i think it's still gonna be the horrors no actually i I lie it's not the horrors because the horrors did fuck all day one. Yeah. <laughs> it did a lot of work day two, but no, no, no bueno day one. My MVP would be the vampire count. Because, see the Archaeology upgrade? Yeah. That is fucking sexy investment when you take occultism. What's the Archaeology? So the... Yeah, it gives him plus six inches on his spells, plus three inches on his aura, and he gets the hereditary, all for a whopping 60 points. Yikes, he gets hereditary as well. Yeah. Man. And Brave called 18 inches. Mm. Yeah, exactly. Like, it's mental. So I had him on an adept, and he was breath of corruption stuff and rot within, and he was just so, so good because he could play defensively and still get his points back or contribute Mm. some way to getting his points back. So it's hard for a vampire kid to fully get his points back a lot of the time, but, but I've seen a lot of people go wizard master on him now, and I think that would be, if I do revisit that list with the, the horrors and that setup, I think him with, Wizard Master, because like you say, you just grave call stuff, and you know it's just it's just bananas. Good. I, I imagine they'll change it soon, but if they don't, then people should play that because it's six sauce. <laughs> so <laughs> he would be my MVP. Nice. What about yourself? I mean, <laughs> I kind of don't have one because, like, I think Paul, the uh, my chariots did like fantastically against you. Yeah, but. The- my second game, I managed to run them into the front of Saurus with spears and flaming, and then they all died. So that <laughs> sort of a bit of a a lot of the time that would happen that every game would change. So I'd say maybe I'd have to go with my hierophant. Um, so I'm, I was running double master so that I can have one master with three heals, three buffs, which turn out to be three heals on the hierophant. So I can spend the whole magic phase buffing one unit and healing another. And I did that a couple of times, and that is fantastic. The ability to just sort of go... Well, you already with, with UD, you've got a fantastic ability to kind of 
you know, buff and hit, buff and raise, and all of a sudden the two Shabti you were fighting is now six Shabti with like eight buffs, and you can't really do much. But sometimes you don't actually want the buffs on the things you're raising, and you know it's not the end of the world if you get them. But it was yeah. so being able to be a little bit more liberal with where I was throwing the heels. So yeah, Hierophant MVP. An undead guy rates his guy that brings back the things that have died. <laughs> Shocker. <Before>. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so opposite end of the spectrum. Paul, who was the LVP? So, LVP, not because they're necessarily a bad unit choice. I think the barb horsemen I had on the list, I had kind of brought them with the kind of view that they're cheap enough that I can use them to um, go after objectives because they score, but they're not that expensive to the point where I can use them as chaff. Right. Um, unfortunately, they, they kind of fell into the chaff role for most of the weekends. Like, so, they're just a little bit, I mean, they've got a good armor save, but they're just rest three still, and there's, there's not a lot of them, so any wounds are taken, they, they really hurt. Um, so, they weren't really tough enough to hold on to objectives once they actually took them. I think I kind of brought them in mind, like, oh, they're ideal for something like Breakthrough. I don't think Breakthrough was a secondary in that tournament. No, because, um, for some reason it, it, uh, it was random, randomly done, um, yeah. and frontline, Clash and Breakthrough were the two that didn't get chosen and they're everyone's favourites. So <laughs> everyone's like, oh shit, we've got to do the complex yeah. deployments, great. <laughs> so um, I, th- I think I think the Barb Horsemen in the end they, d- they didn't really fill the the role I had in mind for them but it wasn't necessarily, like I say, that they're a bad unit choice. Um, I've ran them before in, in core, if you're bringing the bigger units, and they're actually quite decent because they don't cost very much. Right. But um, it was just it was just their uh, their situation in that list. Um, I just don't think they they did what they were supposed to do. Okay, that's fair enough. Tom, what about you? LVP. <laughs> My other wizard. Um, <laughs> okay. Oh no, the div magic. Well, I mean, I'm just crying, just whinging here. But the div magic didn't kill anything that super impressively. Like, I think I was mentioning it last cast, podcast that the divination magic is really nasty but sometimes you just don't roll well with it and you don't take anything off and then it's just like a bit of a waste but no he he was still though a wizard in a UD army so still did some healing which was super helpful uh, probably put the Shabti I only had seven and they don't have the rending banner so they can kind of get picked on a little bit uh, they're probably like the weak point in the list that's where um you know the easiest points are so I'd probably go with the Shabti I find it mental that you said Shabti are the weak point in the list. <laughs> well, it's because I've, I've not taken them properly. That makes sense. Like, fantastic unit <laughs> right, okay. of eight with a rending banner, because then they shoot and fight just as well, but I dropped yep. the rending banner, and I dropped them down from seven to eight. So that's just... I mean, that's the thing. Like, I did... To be honest, you know, I did quite well at the tournament, and I don't think there was anything that was an LVP. Like, everything yeah. sort of generically works, but... Um, the Shabti were the thing that were maybe like the biggest disappointment might be the better way to describe them. Okay. Like, we used to run them as a eight with any banner, and then they just do everything. And have you been taking them, like, as shooters before, or have you been taking the combat variant? I don't think I've ever taken the combat variant. Oh, um, always shooters, okay. Like, I think, yeah, I mean, it's, it just comes down to the fact that they don't swift stride, mostly. Like, yeah, it's, yeah, that's massive, yeah. You know, that if I've got a combat unit, I'm gonna take the cataphracts because they, they're just faster, so they'll get the charge better. Whereas the Shabti, they're not particularly good at charging, so I might as well have them shooting as they get into a position. Yeah, that's fair enough. My LVP, I think, would have to be the race. Oh, really? Really? Yeah, just because magic missiles are so prevalent just now, and they just get bullied. Although, like, this is... Because I had bad matchups day one, 
none of the none of my list really got a chance to shine. But then day two, they didn't do really anything game one, and then against Kev, they got I just rolled really well, and they reaped off a Feldrak unit over two turns, which shouldn't have happened really. Well, that's the dream. But that's but that's the dream, yeah. I mean, I've got a love hate relationship with them because when they work, they really work. Mm. But they are just so fragile. That sounds ridiculous saying anything worth three up pages is fragile, but um, <laughs> like three and only like five wounds on the base though, so you you fail two out of three. Yeah, and then they're gone, and then they're only raise one, so it's hard to get them back up once once they start taking casualties. I don't know. I think if you if you taken them, I'm almost tempted to say like you've got to double up like the horrors. But then that's a massive points investment if you come up against Pyro and he will just shoot the shit out of them and they can't play the game. But I feel that they were kind of the the one element of the list that didn't really didn't really contribute across the five games. I think everything else got its chance to shine and did so. I mean, mm. fuck, even the zombies won a round of combat. <laughs> were they fighting other zombies? No, they were fighting, uh, what was it, Dread Elf Corsairs? <laughs> yeah, they ran in. Didn't do enough. The zombies got a few cheeky wounds. He filled his break test, run away, <laughs> chase them <Amazing>. down. All <laughs> <laughs> oh, hail the zombies. Yeah. Should have heard wow. Barry Lynch at Bristol when he had zombies in the Brains. The whole room knew about it. <laughs> it's because they like they literally do nothing. They're just there to die. So when they do do something, like it catches us by surprise as well. Oh, dude, I'm the same. Like, if my dog survived, like, until the end of the game, I'm fucking amazed. I'm almost suspicious. I'm thinking, like, oh, yeah. I must have up somehow if I haven't managed to get my chaff killed. Yeah, they're, mm. they're not committed to the cause. There's something wrong here. There's a mutiny. Exactly. Okay, so, I mean, we've already kind of touched upon this, but going forward, like, I've discussed about Ballas, so we don't need to revisit that. But for you guys, have you had any kind of list thoughts going forward? Are there any things that you're going to keep? Any things you're going to ditch? in terms of developing that list, or are you going to park that list like me and try something else now? Go for it, Paul. The list is okay. It's, it's not earth-shattering. The things I like in the list, the irredeemable stuff, I'm going to just invest more in. So I've got a list there that I ran on the weekend that got a win, so it's, it's deserved itself another yeah another trial. So, so that's the two units of six and the two fallen ones. Yeah, uh, two fallen ones. ones, two units of six wretched ones, and then there's two units of six Forsworn, and then two big blocks of barbarians. So there's like 160 uh, wounds in the list. Nice. Which, which for a warrior's army is fucking ridiculous. Yeah, that's vampire numbers right there. <laughs> so and it's either all unbreakable or all fearless or all has rerolls. Basically, you've got multiple anvils, and then you can set up so you've got multiple counter charges with different things. Okay. So you can't really you can't really charge individual stuff. You've got to basically charge the line yeah. and hope you hold it. Mm. So that's that's the idea of the new list. But the list I had, Scottish Champs, was, was okay. It kind of struggled with chaff clearing, but that's just something that the book at the time it was just really poor at. Which there are diff- like with the new book coming out, there's there's some new things there that kind of offset that a little bit. So come up with anything wonderful in the new book? Was there anything like brand new that spoke to you? Things that stand out, just like small things. So just the fact that certain things are just that little bit cheaper. Mm. Just makes it like, okay, I will bring that now and I can bring two of them. And so like for instance, like we spoke about when we did the review, like flares in the book are like movement ten, march twenty, fast cav with strider. Mm. Yeah. So before they had like a six up save and they were res three. Now you actually get a four up save. Mm. So you're so you're like, okay, that's bringable now. 
um, and I can bring balls on them, and I can try and clear chaff. So that in tandem with Chimera, which have gone down in points, so they're now cheaper than chariots, whereas before uh, they were more expensive. You can basically have two units of dogs, two units of Chimera, two units of flares for about 800-odd points. Everything there can march at least 20 inches. Oh, it's so good. A chimera Fantastic chaff. Well, they're chaff, but they also... They're kind of heavy chaff. They're 200 points. They're so just they can good. go after chaff, or they can get in the way. So <laughs> you can basically just swamp your opponent, and then in that list I've got knights and stuff with triple march banner, and just I can just push at someone. So if mm-hmm. I drop for first, I can just pin them in place and set up charges turn two. But like just having more effective chaff in the book is a big deal. So going forward, that's something that I've, I've got two lists in mind. I've got the kind of elite list, and I've got the kind of irredeemable uh, barbarian style list that I want to try. But mm-hmm. there are big differences in the book. I think for the most part, the changes have been really good. So I think um, I think warriors are like the second most popular army at tech. Yeah, yeah, demons are first and then warriors, I think. So I think the changes are are positive, and I think the fact that they are more popular now than they were six months ago at tournaments, I think, is a good indication that they're on the right path. So, yeah, it's good. Nice. What about you, Tom? ETC coming uh, up, any thoughts on this? Yeah, I mean, well, it's like, like I said, that I've already done a lot of tinkering with the list, so it really is that I'm not even getting it down to about 100 points. But I was... <laughs> the guys yesterday that I'm at the point of list building where I'm just staring at the list <laughs> hoping that points spring out of nowhere because <laughs> it's one of those it's like a proper Jenga thing like well, if I drop that that means that I can take this but then I also have to take this which means that that becomes droppable and all of that kind of nonsense so like really small permutations that will only matter when it kind of comes really down to it so you know from like a regular tournament point of view n- nothing that will matter but from an ETC point of view it might get me that one or two DPs over the course of the day which will help the team out so that's the kind of minutiae that I'm looking at or I'm, I've written up a couple like different lists you know that we, that, like you're doing for TEC that right well I know that what that does now let's try out something different but those, that's maybe a little bit more secret uh, so I can't <laughs> in all of this uh, damn our Team Scotland shenanigans didn't work <laughs> well I spent most of the weekend trying to convince Fraser to play the <laughs> 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 Poor Frazier getting walloped left, right, and centre. I was like, you know, you need you need some filth in your life. <laughs> yeah, I, I think Dread Elves are not for him thus far. Yeah. <laughs> so definitely sticking the the two masters was that because that was the big thing in, in your list that it's got the two masters. So did you feel that that paid off? I know obviously Dev Magic wasn't great, but no, I I, I I that's one of the things that I'm sort of the most sold on. The oh, double master, okay. It's because what the. Yeah, you know, the normal run map, map um, uh, sort of config is a master on divination. Excuse me, master on divination with the soul conduit, and then a hierophant adept on cosmology or evo. Now, the issue with that is that a lot of the time your adept only has one buff spell. Like you're either taking cosmology and taking truth of time, and then ice and fire, or you're taking um, rerolls to hits from evocation, and then minus one resilience. You know, that, that you're not yeah. taking off, which means that then your healing abilities is that much more constrained because you've only got one guy with one spell that's able to cast a heal on something that's not the target he's healing. And normally he also comes with the arcane book. And 
with all the different, you know, permutations of magical shenanigans, they, the double master isn't actually that much more expensive than that setup. It's something like 150, 160 points more at the end of it. And in the Yundine Dynasties book, that doesn't really get you much. Yeah, in an Orc and Goblin book, you then have the decision, is that like two or three chaff pieces that you might want to take? Yeah. But if you do, it's a bit like, well, that's like another cataphract and then two-thirds of a shabti. So, like, from an opportunity cost point of view, I think it's it's fantastic. Uh, I'm really liking it, but I'm, I'm really, really not going to change that unless something drastic happens, I think. Okay, cool. If you didn't take Dev on the second master, would you change the lore and take something else? Well, that's actually one of the talking about these all these points tinkering and stuff. That if I if I don't take divination, then I don't need to take the wizard hat on my architect. So then that frees up fifty points. So it's kind of a strange way of looking at it, but it's almost like the option of cha- taking divination costs me fifty points. Got to take that range extender, and if I was to take the range extender, I don't think div works at twenty one inches, especially not with my list. Um, so I could I, I I'd love to run cosmology evocation for triple snipe. But again, that for if you want to run the triple snipe, which is the big threat from that combination, you need double master for it. Yeah. So I think that I say most people have it quote unquote correct when you are just taking divination master, who's there to just zap some big threats and cast some really nice buffs, and then an auxiliary guy who's just helping pick up the slack from the buffs that the main guy can't do. That's what most people do, and that's what works for most people. Um, but I just like having a little bit more either massive threat. Either we, whether it be like triple snipe or having something like this massive amount of raises that I could bring back. Yeah, that sounds good. I but, uh, it, yeah, again, you're talking team events. Div is one of those spell laws that will just cause pairings issues for the other guys. Yeah, that's it, isn't it? It's shamanism, divination, alchemy, and uh, pyro. They're the ones that can totally yeah. swing matchups. Yeah, exactly. Like, you know, you, you can play an elf army and just be like, no, I'm totally happy to play this list. Absolutely no issues whatsoever. And then you look at the law on the mage and it's pirate and you're like, oh, actually, I think I'll probably lose it now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Similarly, Paul, like your list, going into my list with the triple, if I had triple snipe, you'd been much happier than those poor forsaken guys having to face div laser beams. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, so I just think div's such a good thing to take from a team point of view. That whether you think your list might work better because of, you know, a different combination, realize that it actually massively helps the team if you just got that threat of divination yeah yeah no that sounds good so we've kind of we've hinted at it all the way through but um basically you do are filthy so <laughs> what we're going to discuss just now is the all-important question of where we think the the land lays just now so we've just had uh, a new wave of updates for what is of the Dark Gods and Demon Legions. So what I'm going to ask you both is who would you say are your top three armies just now? So, Tom, you can start since you're the pro. Oh, gosh. Well, UD. I mean, that's... <laughs> there really is no arguing against that. It has to be UD. Um, and then it's a little bit of a, like, Vampire Counts, Demon Legions, and Vermin Swarm. And I think Vermin Swarm, the strength only really comes out in specific metas. Like, Vermin Swarm are horrendously powerful, but have some really bad matchups as well. And if your meta's full of bad matchups, then you're not going to do well with Vermin Swarm, despite them being super powerful. Well, things like the Demon Legions, Vampires, and Undying Dynasties, they kind of don't have anywhere near as many bad matchups. So probably have to put those as the top three, just because they're powerful, and like, and like they're, they're good books, and they don't have as much of a weak side as some of the other good books. Like, KOE, um, Vermin Swarm... They've got some really good builds, like really good builds, 
that will smash a lot of armies, but really struggle against others, which is, I think, yeah, that's what balance is. That's, that, there's that essentially should be every army. Right. And vampires are not in the season, do you lead in, so it's just to have as long a list of those things, I think. Even though it's quite new, a couple of my regular opponents are Demon Legion players, and they're also quite good players. So I tend to kind of... I know they're new, but I think I've got a pretty decent handle on them thus far. Okay. Well, we'll touch on the choices. We'll get um, Paul's input first. Paul, who would you say your top three just now? I'd definitely put VC in uh, Vermin Swarm. Um, and I, I've only played UD once, but between playing Tom's list, looking at how the other UD players did, and... Because I knew I was going to play Tom, I properly read the book beforehand. And just looking at, you know, how things are costed in that book and what you get, I think UD are definitely top. Okay. So I would agree UD. I would probably say Vermin second. And then I think it's uh, Vampires or Demons third. I don't necessarily automatically book Undying Dynasties at number one. Like, my three was just a, like a generic number yeah, one. Yeah, yeah, no, that, that's okay. I feel like I need to get... I haven't played the new Demon book yet. But since there's nine of the fuckers coming to tech, I probably will have to play them at the weekend. <laughs> Are you gonna? So I feel like I need to play them to kind of confirm what I'm feeling. But what I'm feeling just now is that the book is fucking mental. Not only is it like you need to have advanced degree just to understand it, but <laughs> like some of the combos you can take on the units that perfectly complement other combos that you can take on other units is a bit mental. And it's low model count, but everything's super fast and aggressive and can really smash face. So I think that's I think we're going to see a lot of Demon Legions at uh, ETC this year. I've not really kept up with the changes. How has the Demon Legions book changed since the last iteration? Has it been points or has it been big design changes? Like, what what's happened to the book? So there's what? been a couple things. So the points have been tweaked on a few things. Um, but there's also, and this is something I just discovered today, because apparently I had the, the old book on my iPad. But some of the units now... I don't believe it's all of them. I think it's still only some of them have like a a primary upgrade. Because it used to be like they could only take one manifestation. Yeah. But now like the bloat flies, which are the, the new spice, yeah. like they've got one manifestation that they can take just flat out. It doesn't count as their one. And then they can take okay. another manifestation. Yeah, I saw uh, Jordan's rebasing all of his stuff so he can take uh, flies to tick. Yeah, because they're, they're mental. They're five health points each. And they yeah. don't die. <laughs> like, no, they do die, but they when they die, they splash out acid and take you with them. And then they uh, get back up because they can recrow roots. It's you could, uh, yeah. I, I'd say, Paul, to like, answer your question, that Andy's right, there's been like small tweaks across the board, but the, the big things are that hoarders are, well, I don't know if they're shit now, but they got kind of triple nerfed, frankly. The, what used to be, the, 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 the reason that hoarders were bent was because they had web skill 6, defensive... Sorry, Defense Web Skill 6, uh, Toughness 5, and they had the minus one attack aspect. So yeah. they were hard to put any serious amount of wounds onto. And now they've dropped the defensive skill from 6 to 5. They've dropped, they're, they don't even have the option of taking the minus one attack thing. And they've gone up in points. Okay. That might be too much of a nerf, and, and you might not see them anymore. Um, whereas Bloatflies is the exact opposite. That they used to be dog shit that were just terrible. Nobody, they weren't, literally weren't in any lists. And now they've maybe gone a little bit too far the other side and are crazy powerful. But those are the two changes from like a unit mechanics point of view. And then in characters, uh, they've changed around the omens a little bit to make them less of an obvious take these ones choice. Yeah, they were bent. Yeah, they were. I mean, they're still really good, but you can't put two units, two of them in the same unit anymore, for example. They, they cost more points now as well. 
and big stage thematically. Yeah, yeah, uh, and some of the other big monster options are now like a little bit more viable. So that's basically it. So not massive changes, but a few. Okay. Cool. Yeah, apparently bloatflies are the only unit that have got this um, additional manifestation option, unless I'm well, missing something. So bloatflies have the option of taking. Well, they've got the acid splash. They get the normal. acid splash standard, and then they can take the brute mother. Yeah, and then they have an option. Uh, yeah. So they, brute mother is just like I don't know. Other armies might think like it's an upgrade from like light armor to heavy armor. That's just a thing that they can do. And then they've also got a load of weapon options below them. Which in this case yeah. is a manifestation. I mean, okay. they do get very expensive very quickly because you're you're talking at least nineteen points. You're either on per model, but yeah, they seem they seem very good. Yeah, I mean, in general, that's the thing with the demon legions that you say that yeah, you're scared about all these crazy combos that they've got, and like yeah, they are there, but you do cost you do spend on them. Yeah, they are like, expensive. Yeah, you do end up with like Jordan's army from the last. Obviously, that's all changed now, but yeah, that was an upgrade heavy list and a five unit. Yeah. I maybe need to reserve judgment on the demons until I, I get them on the table. Because I, th- I don't know, I, I'm finding it really hard to judge. Because it looks good on paper, but there's a lot of things that look good on paper, and then you take them to the table and they just don't work. Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, Paul Paul mentioned earlier that so also sometimes you need to play something. Yeah, like, exactly, get but, your head around it. Yeah, it doesn't seem powerful, and then all of a sudden you play it. Like, I, the bloke flies, I was like, oh, okay, well, it's going to be strength three, I suppose. Uh, okay, well, let's see. Like, wait a minute, hold on. It's two for every one that I do, and I get no saves. This is unbel- unbelievable. Yeah, we'll wait and see about them. Okay, so we're kind of agreed in the, the general area. Vermin Swarm, what's the verdict on them? Obviously, super powerful shooting. Are we thinking maybe too good, or do we think that that's the kind of level that we want all the books at? I've not played them in a while, but um, last time I did play them, I wouldn't have said they were too strong. I just think they're just good at what they're supposed to be good at, yep. or certainly they've got good units which I think is totally fine. And they've got a lot of shit units as well. So I don't know if they're too powerful. I think it's kind of hard to say unless you really play the army and you get a good appreciation for like how a unit performs as to what it costs. Yeah. So whether things are just too cheap or whether things are just too good. Um, <clears throat> I'm, I'm, I don't know, but um, they're definitely up there. Just I think, because they, they scared a lot of people at the in the run-up to the World Championship. So controversially... The World Championships have uh, brought in this comp system. They wanted to, but then the captains voted it down. Oh, have they? So that's not going ahead? Yeah, exactly. So the, Ah, right. Okay, I wasn't aware of that. Yeah, the guy organising it, will say diplomatically, got a little bit upset with the direction the ninth age was going. Um, <laughs> so decided to try and implement what he viewed as the most needed changes, but the way that he went about it wasn't maybe the most diplomatic. Uh, so he angered a few people, ruffled a few feathers. He felt that he wanted to call a vote on the captains that were attending to sort of, well, to just give them the option, and they did not want the comp. Okay, because one of the comps was that, like the um, the dreadmills, that they could mm-hmm. one were limited to one of them per army, which the the dreadmills are probably a bit too cheap for what they are just now. But if you can only take one of them, it just don't work as well because they're zoners primarily. Yeah. So what's the point in taking? one of them. Like you kinda need two. So you can put one on either flank or double up and really push hard. Yeah, I think things like that are they're a little bit too strong because you you're effectively changing how the book works. And yeah. it makes it a lot harder to build a list when you're just depriving people of those kind of choices. So I think that maybe that's an, an instance where it's just a points thing. Yeah, I mean I was speaking to just uh, in terms of the general power level, not specifically saying this is too expensive or, or whatever it might be or this is too cheap, but 
the problem with the vermin swarm army is that there's like a list of between sort of four and six things in the whole list that do anything at all. Like it's the pendulum, it's the vermin demon, it's the doom wheels, it's the bell, it's you know there's a very small list of things that actually do anything in the book, and they're very high value, high price targets. And then yeah. the rest of the book is thing, and then the rest of the, so the army is just crap to let that stuff happen. So that's why I think they're not as powerful as some of the other options because they do have here's my expensive things that if I die that if I die I will lose this game super easily it's not like Undying Dynasties or Demon Legions where there's kind of like oh there's so much threats everywhere and I don't know which I need to prioritise and you know things that have got different abilities depending on my army and things like that but in the Vermin Swarm list there's always going to be a very small number of priority targets that you need to take um, and a lot running around solo so you can't even like hide them in yeah again these doom bits, they're really good but they don't do well to cannons same with the Vermin Demon, etc., etc. So I'd say that's why, personally, I don't view Vermin Swarm as being as powerful as some of the others, just because the recipe for beating them is a little bit obvious kind of thing. That a lot of the stuff's crap, so don't worry about it. Just kill the Doom Wheels and the Vermin Demon. Okay. Uh, vampires? Too strong? Just strong enough? In desperate need of a buff? <coughs> <laughs> I don't know if it's that some of these armies are too strong, or if there's just too many armies that aren't strong enough. See, this is the the debate, isn't it? Because I think that most of the books are... I think most options in most books are fine. It's just that I think we're at the stage now where it's price tweaks. But I don't know if I'm in a minority in, in that view. I even think UD. I think the way UD work is fine. I just think that they're maybe a bit too cheap. Yeah, no, I agree. I, th- I think that's a mark of, like, well done the project kind of thing. That they have basically kind of stuck to their guns. They've decided that this stuff is how stuff will work. And it's now just going to be points tweaks. Because I think a good example is the Hourglass, which is a UD item that allows you to re-roll all failed two-dice casts. Yeah. And it's why would you not take this thing? This is obviously the best item in the book and maybe the game. So everybody took it. Then it went up a few more points. And still pretty much everybody took it. A few people were like, I don't think it's worth it anymore, etc., etc. Then it went up a few more points, and I didn't take it. I don't think anybody at Scottish Championships took it, but people definitely still do take it. So that's a really good example of the item itself isn't too powerful, it's just pointed incorrectly. Yeah. So, so then it's fine. And I think that's probably the case with UD. I'm sorry, we're talking about VC right now, but I think VC in general, I think, is almost like the sweet spot of power level, probably, that they're aiming for. Like, there's a lot of really good options that, that most of the book can be taken, you know, internally. Yeah. So it seems to be well-pointed from that respect, and it's obviously powerful enough that, you know, these options, that there isn't, like, one net build... There isn't just that one no. unit there. So you really do see everything. Uh, so I'd say they're probably almost the gold standard of where all the army should be. Sorry, Andy. Yeah, no, I I agree. Like we've talked about this on here before, but uh, we kind of think that vampires is kind of the book that they should be almost aiming for for all the rest because it seems mm-hmm. to have that magic combo of being very effective on the table, but also very flavorful. And you, you've got, I mean, there's so many options in the book. Everything's playable. I think oh, maybe yeah. it's only the Tomb Reapers. They're the only unit that jumps to mind that are a bit meh. And the Corpse Cart. The Corpse Cart is shit just now. It needs, it needs something. But like to have two options out of an entire book where you're like... Yeah, <laughs> like, exactly. No, that's, that's, pretty... that's brilliant. All the Bloodlines are good. Folk moan about Brotherhood of the Dragon and Nosferatu, but we're starting to see builds come out of them, and I think it's just been a case that people need time to adjust and to actually test stuff. So I think... I mean, there's definitely stuff that I think is maybe a bit too cheap. Mm-hmm. And the vampire, like the arcane knowledge, 
as much as I love it, 60 points is, is fucking ridiculous for what that does. Yes. Um, that needs to change. <laughs> but I guess. You say that though, that like, to me it seems, you can't just look at it at how many points is this thing. It's no, the yeah. Yeah. You know, that means, if you're doing that, that means you're taking either an Osferatu bloodline, which then means that you don't have blood dragons or Lamians, or you're not taking any bloodline, which in itself is weaker. So I don't mind that being a little bit cheaper, if you know what I mean. But I would get too specific now, I guess, but like. Yeah. I mean, that, that's the big, that's a big topic on the, the forum just now. If anyone's interested, you can go and check that out, because there's a, there's a debate raging. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. So that's our top three slash four. Who do we think is bottom of the barrel? Who are who are our three armies that we think are struggling? If there are three, if there's if there's not, that's fine. To be fair, the only one that springs to mind for me that I think isn't great is right now anyway are the Sylvan Elves. Okay, Sylvan Elves. I mean everything else. I'm I'm literally on the website and I'm looking at the books, and that's the only one that I look at and I think meh. I think everything else is good. Mm. Okay, that's interesting. Uh, Tom, any thoughts? Um, it's tricky because again, you're talking like from a UK meta point of view. Yeah, exactly, and that that will skew things, obviously. Like I'm on I'm on an ETC team with a with a few Europeans, and from their point of view, like they don't really think UD's that that bent. Like they think it's good, but they don't think it's overpowered. Whereas you could talk to like there's three or four names that spring to mind that are super salty about the UD in the UK, about that that. You know, again, the, the UK meta doesn't play against UD particularly well. So I think maybe the UK meta is suited to dealing with elves incredibly well. Like we've got quite a lot of, quite a lot of shooting. We've got quite a lot of MSU, which is good because MSU tends to counter other MSU pretty well, if that makes sense. Because, you know, you don't need a large threats to take out their threats because they're not big either. So I think I agree with Paul that Sylvan Elves pretty low. And then I'd probably follow up with the other two elves. I don't think they're, they're probably in the lower end in general, and very specifically in the UK. There's just too many counters, I think. No, I mean, too many counters meaning, you know, it's an army of toughness 3 stuff. So, out yeah. of books, the ones that contain more non-toughness 3 stuff, I'd say are probably the more powerful ones. So, I think maybe I'd put Sylvan Elves up a little bit higher, but only Sylvan Elf armies that I'd actually have any elves in. Um, <laughs> the When you start running the trees, then they start to be pretty decent. But that's just one you build. Yeah, yeah it's almost like the cookie cutter thing, because... I wouldn't have read, I wouldn't have said that Sylvan Elves were in the lower tier until I, I did a few lists talking with Martin before Christmas. There's the restrictions in that book that really part. Like, you want to be able to take stuff, but you can't because you're over caps in certain things, and there's restrictions that cross barriers, and it's a nightmare yeah. trying to write a list for that book. Mm. And that's why I think the tree list is so good, because it doesn't, it kind of ignores a lot of the, the restrictions. Yeah. Yeah, I think Dread Elves are the same. Like, if you take Dread Elves with the altar, like you, it's almost like auto. Like you take the altar, you put it in a block, whether that's Spears or Dread Judges or Tower Guard. Yeah. Um, and then you've got double Hydra, double Kraken, couple of bolt throwers. That's you. But yeah, because because that's not the toughest three stuff. Yeah, exactly. And it's but it's like meh. It's all right, but that's not really a good sign for a book if everyone's just taking that one thing. I would have said Orcs and Goblins, but they've like. The last couple updates, they've got <laughs> getting head kicked in by him on round one. Yeah, fuck yeah, <laughs> Rob's mentally scarred me. Um, but I think the last few updates have been quite kind to them, so they're kind of risen up. But they're pretty decent there. Highborn elves, I think, are all right. It's really hard to tell highborn elves because I, I read the book and I think it's all right. But then you go in the forum and fucking hell, everyone and their grannies moaning about them. From what I have heard about people that like know people 
yeah, high elves are big moners. They they always have been the biggest moner, and like I can actually remember this going back even to the days when it was Warhammer that it was always high elf players whinging. <laughs> they're, they're always no, it's, it's, that, that's legit. Like the moaning on the Warrior forum got to the point where I think highborn elves were moaning that our moaning was more moaning <laughs> than theirs. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's, like when you mention highborn elves, like I watch a lot of the bat reports from a lot of the the guys from like North America. To put out a lot of different material, and when I watch their games, like Highborn Elves look so strong. Like they, I think they do quite well in North America compared to here. So I think obviously, like well, like what we've mentioned before, like it's obviously very meta dependent, like what people are bringing and how things are countered. Yeah, I mean, High Elves won the U.S. Masters last year. Justin Boogie, if you're listening, but yeah, so I just said that they're probably my lowest as far as my meta concerned. But obviously, in the U.S. meta. They're winning the Masters, so yeah. well done, Ninth Age. It's well balanced. Yeah, well, this was the big thing last year as well, wasn't it, with the Saurian Ancients? Like, they were running riot in the UK, and, like, all the people on the continent were kind of looking around and going, why the fuck are Saurians winning tournaments? There's dog shit over here. It was the same with Jed Elves last year in the summer, no? In Europe. Like, yeah, that was slightly more specialist because everyone started taking the big blocks of dancers because everyone realised that four-up Aegis in combat's actually really good. Yeah. yeah. But again, that's one build that did really well if you didn't have strength three shooting to face. Yes, yeah, or Pyro. I mean, Pyro just picks them apart. <laughs> exactly, Pyro. Okay, so that's good then. I mean, so overall, we're kind of saying it's pretty good, pretty even. A couple overachievers, a couple underachievers, but it's really just fine margins. Fine margins, and it seems to be, like, not like, you know, a national methods, like, well, whatever the play style tends to be in your country will will dictate what is powerful or what is weak for you. You know, the, the, there isn't an answer, I guess. It yeah. just depends. So if you're listening and you're playing UD and you're struggling, break the meta. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Crazy. Yeah. That's the thing. Like, again, I was talking to Mark Greensill about, like, after I, I beat him, he was like, well, how do I beat you in this list? And I was like, just get something that kills the bunker. And then I'm completely fucked. Like, I've got... Triple Vakalak. <laughs> well, every UD list will have... Roughly a thousand two hundred points sat on a very small tray with zero defensive capabilities, and if it dies, the rest of the army starts to die as well. So it's like a really obvious counter, and nobody tends to bring like big flying stuff that's um, that, that can fight, which is why they probably one of the worst matchups for UD is um, is um, uh, KOE because they've got Peg Knight, which flying can fight, um, but nobody really brings things like that. And you know, again. I can't remember the last time I played against a binding scroll. We mentioned it last time. It sucks balls when you get your heel binded on the turn that you need to bring everything back. Yeah. Um, so there's just maybe in Europe, both of those things are really common, which is why UD aren't doing particularly well there. Yeah, I think the binding scroll is definitely a point. Like the binding scroll seems to be much more popular in European lists than it does here. But I think that's maybe starting to shift. Um, I'll need to have a good look at the tech list, see how many appear, but. Um, I was surprised at the Scottish Championship that we saw a few Binding Scrolls, a couple Crystal Balls as well, so maybe Magic Defence. Like mm. MR as well, there was quite a few MR. Well, um, all the Silver Elf lists had all the Ether Icons. In yeah, exactly. Because um, they learned. <laughs> yeah, because they're, they're adapting to the meta as well, so it's it's interesting to see how things are um, almost starting to shift just now, and it's like we're in a rare position where we can actually see stuff starting to shift a wee bit. Mm-hmm. Um, so it'll be interesting to see what the next couple months. So... One last topic that we need to cover, but any kind of final takeaways from Scottish Championship? I think for me, like, not playing against certain armies, like, within your own club makes a massive difference. 
when he actually comes to playing them in tournaments. Yeah. And that probably is like a really obvious thing to say. But like if you're in a fairly small club like ours, where you've only got like ten or so regular players, not coming up against half of the armies in the game makes playing in tournaments much more difficult. Like I play against Undying Dynasties, Infernal Dwarves, Ogre Khans, and Dread Elves, which I think I've played them only a handful of times ever. And obviously against Tom that was the first time I'd ever played UG. So I think like we were talking about like why you go to tournaments. I think going to tournaments for going to tournament's sake and just getting the experience, if that's what you have to do to like get that experience if you're not getting it in your club is like totally a legit thing to do and like people shouldn't worry about bombing and losing all their games because going to like four tournaments, five tournaments in a year and getting hammered the following year when you go to more tournaments you're going to be that much better because you've picked up all that experience mm-hmm. and that's like a ma- like you're going to have a massive advantage over anyone in your club that isn't doing that yeah. you're just going to have that much wider experience so for me just going to tournaments into itself is like massive and obviously like the, like we've said before like the main reason we do it is just for the fun yeah. and like it, it was a great event it was like a great two days like everyone had a good time so that was basically my takeaway from the event. It's just going there for the sake of being there and getting the experience is, is the main thing. Yeah, I think experience is super important. And yeah, like you said, just go for fun. Like, here's the number one tip. If you want to win an event, this is the only thing that you need to do. All right? You ready? Everybody listening? You need to get a really good draw. I got five really good matchups. Yeah. That's why I won. It wasn't because UD are OP. It wasn't because I'm a fantastic player. It wasn't because of any other factor other than I got lucky in the draw. So it's a dice game. There's going to be luck involved. Don't sweat, like, going to an event and not necessarily doing well and thinking that you're crap because you didn't do well. Like, there's so much luck that matters. Just go to the events. And I just want to reiterate, I'm going to sing your praises a little bit, so hopefully your blushes won't illuminate the sky too much. But I <laughs> the event. It was, first of all, just from a venue point of view, it was fantastic. It was really close to the station, so really nice and easy to get to. The, the food that was put on, we actually had real food. Like, we had soup on the first day and two options of soup which I think was homemade by the guy that ran the place which was just sort of unheard of you know it's close to healthy so having really nice food options which is something that I normally don't care about because I'm used to all the food at tournaments just kind of being a little bit shit and I'm probably not having lunch anyway but you know just a little bit different was was nice everything went incredibly well in terms of timings I don't think there was any delays from that end of things even a couple with... of people tried to delay but we, we split them in order <laughs> <laughs> I think you're looking at me here because I remember you actually came over and like sort of said, guys, it's going to be dice down soon. And my opponent was a little bit sad. So you let us play it through, which is, I think, also that's good TOing. Like, by all means, say dice down, but don't be a dick about it. Go over. And what the, so for people listening, what the situation was is that we were halfway through a combat phase. And we'd done, because it was my combat phase, I picked the ones that I wanted to do first and we'd done them. Andy appears, so our guys are going to be dice down in like 15 seconds or whatever it is. And the Tim with, had a combat, uh, had a unit into my bunker. So if you called dice down then, completely unfairly, we finish halfway through a combat phase and Tim doesn't get sort of the three tournament points he ended up getting because he smashes my bunker kind of thing. So I think you TO'd it well in the way that you had the way that you wanted to do it, but that you were sympathetic to the individual situations. And good crowd, lovely people. The uh, highlight for me has to be the dog. Um, <laughs> uh, I'd actually eventually lose my cat the weekend before, so I was actually pretty miserable. So it was nice being able to have a lovely, fluffy little, uh, little, little friend. 
uh, dotting around. So go yeah. for the dog. Scarra's a babe. Yes, she is. Tom, was it you that said that you appreciated the toilet? I don't remember saying that. I do appreciate <laughs> the toilets like someone, that. that someone great. said to me at the event, by the way, the toilets here are like really good because they're clean. Wow. And after being at Bristol, I totally second that opinion. <laughs> um, I, I never thought of that. Um, yeah. Maybe I'm just too much of a sloven for you, Paul, and I've got like a lower level that I'm acceptable. Yeah, so again, talk about the venue, that it was a really good venue, that it was carpeted, there was decent heating, there was decent um, lighting, there was uh, a nice gaming space, and then there was also the um, like the shop. Uh, the there was like a canteen. Yeah, you could order food and get hot drinks. And the the, the location of that served both the shop and the gaming centre. So it, it just yeah, it, like the venue itself was absolutely top notch. Fantastic job done there. Which you know, <laughs> which you guys didn't do at all. So you're getting no, we don't. I mean, I'll, I'll take all the praise, right? But... Yeah, well, exactly. Andrew was it to you. Yeah, he didn't build the. Place, yeah, the did yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, it was the nice venue. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is true. Yeah, well picked, Andy. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, any takeaways, Paul? Sorry, what we're we talking about? <laughs> any takeaways from the Paul. tournament in general? I started that conversation. Did you? Yeah, I gave you my takeaways. Did you say what's your takeaway? Playing armies, you don't know they get to play. Oh fuck yeah. <laughs> What about you, Andrew? What are, what are your takeaways? Yeah, well, this is the, the beautiful thing about podcasts. We can edit all this out. It'll be fun. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, no, no. All right, ready? One, two, three. Andy, what do you think you was the biggest takeaway from this event? I am so glad you asked, Tom, because <laughs> my best takeaway was um, play better and get more points. God, <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're so gamey, Andrew. I know. Yeah. I'm the worst. I'm the worst. I don't know. I just had fun. It was nice seeing everyone. Uh, everyone seemed to enjoy themselves. There was no issues on the day. We had a couple technological mix-ups, but nothing major. We were able to adapt. Ed was super organised, which helped a lot. Yeah, and everyone kind of left with a smile. The, the meal was really good on the Saturday, I thought. Yeah, it was good. Everyone was in good spirits. No one was an arsehole. So yeah, job well done, I think. It's a good group of guys. Like I'd say like... Yeah, we're very lucky, actually. 80% of the people at that event have been at the last two or three events. Yeah. And the fact that it's the same people coming back, like, that might sound like quite a negative thing for some people because they might think it's a bit cliquey, but really it's a testament to the scene in the UK as a whole where you, after you go to a couple of events, you basically get to meet the same people over and over again. So it actually becomes a really friendly, welcoming event yeah. to go to. Yeah. So that was really nice seeing a lot of the guys, like you mentioned, like, you might only get to see three or four times a year, but it's always a great laugh when everyone meets up. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Totally. Yeah, yeah. Like, I met, there's a guy from Durham and drew some new cars, isn't he? Yeah, Durham is as well. Oh, is he? Right. Well, yeah. there you go. So, two guys from, like, the far north of England, who I'd never normally meet at my local events kind of thing, but were absolutely sound. And next time I see them at an event, wherever that might be, I'll absolutely go up and say hi to them. You know, and this is just friendship groups are expanding. It's just, the best, one of the best things about the hobby is that it is a really social hobby. Yeah. And you had what, 18 last time, 30, 38 this time? Like, it was 30, not to, 32, I think. Super inclusive. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, I mean, I think this is a major thing. See if anyone's like thinking about TO and things like that. Support other events and people will support yours. Like, it's so yes. important to have your club go and go to other events. Cause then like we've now in the last couple of years kind of developed an almost like, northern britain circuit 
between us, mm. Stockport, and the Durham guys. Like, Durham have got their competition in May. You should absolutely sign up if you haven't already. So, between our events, theirs, and then the stuff happening at Element Games, you've got stuff within a kind of four-hour in-the-car radius where you can go to multiple tournaments in the year. And that's how, if you support other people's events, they end up coming to yours, you go to theirs, and develop friendship groups, and then new people come in and you say, oh, we're going to a tournament in two months' time, you should totally come to that. So, I think this is, it sounds so obvious, but it's so important to keep up a scene alive and kind of healthy is just helping each also, other out. Just another, like, to go inside with that, also support your, your local gaming shops as well. Yes. Like, yep. if you can play at home, that's fantastic, but do try and play your games at the gaming store if they'll let you, because, you know, Ninth Age needs to spread through word of mouth. That's really the only way that it's going to happen. So go down, play some games, hopefully people will come over and inquire as to what it is that you're playing, and then all of a sudden Ninth Age is growing a bit, you know. Um, these, these stores are, are amazing for the facility that they let you you know buy your stuff play your games on just like a wait random wednesday but also host these big events you know it's important that we keep them going absolutely and see if you're listening and you're really interested in getting in to the hobby go in the forum message someone or message us or just start a conversation don't be scared of jumping in uh handles anybody listening can uh can then do that i've lost cause in the forum paul space goblin uh your maelstrom I am Maelstrom on the forum. I'm T-M-U-D-E-N on Twitter, if that's what you prefer. There you go. So, uh, yeah, just reach out. So, on that positive note, we're going to go to the final segment of the show, which Mm. is not a negative note, but um, this was a really good question which we had from uh, the lovely, lovely Mal Patel. So, Mal uh, was a tournament scene regular. Who is now, he had to move for work. So he's living in New Zealand and Bermuda. He's kind of going between the two. But long time listener, thank you very much, Mal. He sent us a really good question, which was basically, how do you deal with difficult players? Basically, there was, there's, there's something that's gone on recently and it kind of spilled out on the Twitter a wee bit. And basically, this has just started this conversation again. So there's two ways we can look at this. Like all three of us have TO'd before. And I think the TO's perspective is actually very different from the player perspective. So I'll start off as a player. As a player, how do you deal with a difficult player? It depends what you mean by difficult. Like, I think, you know, like sort of reading through the lines, what you're saying is people that kind of push the limits a bit. You know, they're, maybe they're supposed to roll 12 dice and they've actually just rolled 13. Maybe that unit moves 10 and it's actually ended up moving 12 inches. It's little things like that that I think can be difficult. I mean, not to, to find a point in it, but it is cheating. Don't let your opponent cheat you. Like, it's it's tricky because it's a really easy thing to kind of defend, that if I move my unit 12 inches, Andy, and then you say, actually, do you mind just, met, like, checking that? Or next time you move your unit, just marking it first? I can then respond with, oh, oh why don't you trust me? I thought we were having a friendly game. And, like, don't fall victim to that, basically. But, yeah, yeah you're having a game, but you're having a friendly game. It's like one of those times when you're at, yeah, when you're at school. If somebody had to say, oh, trust me, don't trust them. Like, <laughs> really obvious. This is a window in a Tom's upbringing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, so if you've got somebody who's sort of telling you that they're playing sociably and friendly and are trying to have a good time, they're probably not actually playing socially friendly and having a good time. Like, I, I think that you don't be afraid to call people on stuff. Be firm. Know your rules as well. Like, if you're certain about the way rules should be played then call somebody who's playing it wrong. But if you don't know how that rule should be played, then, you know, it, it, it's that much harder to actually call somebody on it. So be firm on your rules so that you can 
you know know when somebody is doing something out of order or or doing something that doesn't quite work that way um yeah. don't be pull them out on it don't be afraid to um like bringing the to over is a real escalation like that that's the kind of stuff that you kind of don't want to do because that isn't actually you know that's whether it's needed or not that's you're not going to have a good game afterwards if you've already brought the to over so do everything that you can to kind of keep it at your table and to resolve it with him there um if there's a rule that you don't necessarily think that they're properly following up on just read it quietly by yourself while they're doing whatever it is that they're doing you just read it yourself and then you can show it to them rather than challenging them and then both of you trying to go through it together. You know, if you're going to challenge somebody, make sure that you've got the right evidence for it. But I think, yeah, just mostly hold it standing around. If they're doing shysty stuff, or you think they might be doing shysty stuff, just ask them politely to, to keep an eye on it. If they're doing it completely innocently and they're not cheating, then they're, they're going to they're gonna respond well to it. They're going to be like, oh, I'm really sorry, I, I, I am a bit sloppy with my movement or whatever. And then you'll have a good game because it's been brought up. Like I had that at the ETC last year with a guy from a team that is famous for being a difficult team to play. An issue came up, one of the ways that he cast a spell, I called him on it, and he kind of apologised and said, right, we'll do it this way from now on. And we had an absolute blast of the game. So stitch in time saves nine, bring things up early, make sure that you're standing firm, you're not going to allow yourself to get bullied and know your rules. I agree with all of that. Paul, any insights? <sighs> Stink eye. Maximum stinker. Good old stinker. I think uh, there's a lot of weirdos in the hobby, let's be honest. <laughs> yeah. Uh, oh, there goes another 100 <laughs> listeners. We can't afford no, this, Paul. Yeah, we need the weirdos. <laughs> <laughs> no, but, like, seriously, I think, uh, like, if you get to the table, like, I'm very lucky. Like, I don't think I've ever really played anyone that I felt was a difficult person to play against. So, obviously, we're talking about, like, the, the point zero zero one percent of players here, but... Yeah. I think when you meet someone, if you, if, I think you can tell, like, within the first few minutes of exchanging with the person, talking about the game, like, you know, when I play someone at a tournament, I'm asking them, like, oh, how did your last game go? And how are you enjoying your list? And, you know, you're, you're kind of just talking to them. And I think through that way, you can kind of suss out the other person and yeah. get a, a good idea of what they're like just as an individual. And if they seem a bit off, then I think you can kind of think, right, okay, there's maybe kind of bear that in mind a little bit. And, Talking about rules and things, it's, I like before the game starts going through my list and telling everyone what the list does, unless they said they're completely comfortable with it, because yeah. there are, everyone's got specific things in their army book which are different, and unless that person plays against it regularly, it, things might come as, as a surprise, so you want to tell them off the bat, and then there's no confusion and everyone's on the same page before you roll any dice, and I'll always ask questions of their army if I don't know. So I think doing it that way, you can be a little bit more upfront, and then there's less surprises. But like I've luckily never really had to deal with someone that I felt was either cheating on purpose or they were just a sloppy player that weren't really playing how they should. I think unfortunately for the player, you've just got to take it in your stride a little bit. Like as you say, you don't want to be bringing over the to because mm. you don't want to sour the game. So unfortunately, I think you just kind of have to take it on the chin a little bit um, as a player. Because you're there to have a good time and you don't want to get into an argument or cause something that's going to like spoil the day because like you're paying for an event, you're there to have a good time. But at the same time, you don't want to be like some guy like totally shafting your day because for whatever reason he's decided to play like a complete idiot. So I think it's, it's a difficult thing to kind of manage uh, as a player. Maybe at the end of the game, make a point of going to the TO and saying, look, I had this game against this player. 
I'm just going to make you aware of this now. There weren't any like big issues, obviously, but just in case someone else brings this up, you know that this might be a, a recurring thing and you might want to deal with it. Or you might want to watch this player in advance as they're going around and, and keeping an eye on everybody. But I think for the most part, like we're talking about like a tiny fraction of the, of the, of the players, thankfully. Yeah, very few people. I mean, it's on the one, on the one hand, you, we were a small enough community that this can be policed specifically. Yeah. That you see, yeah. right, like, CEOs can have essentially like a list of four or five names where it's like, right, if this guy signs up to your event, just, you know, maybe don't in this first round draw, draw them against somebody who's completely new because they're going to be taking advantage. You know, maybe do keep a little eye on them, making sure that they're, you know, they're by turn four by this time, et cetera, et cetera. So you can do it like that. But I'm a little bit reluctant because people are people. Speaking to one guy at the tournament, he'd played a guy who he viewed as being very difficult. And he was like, I really didn't enjoy the game with that guy. I don't think I'll ever enjoy playing him again. And I stood there. I was like, what are you talking about? He's a lovely bloke. I've played him almost every event that I go to. And I absolutely adore every single one of his games. So there is a little bit of like a, you know, you can kind of have a mentality going into it that this is going to be a bad game because you know this guy is a tricky one. And that seems to be a bit unfair because sometimes, you know, maybe maybe you're the princess. Maybe you're the one who's getting a little bit oversensitive about things and they actually haven't done anything wrong. So it's a little bit something to worry, to, to keep an eye on as well, that everybody's fallible, everybody's going to make mistakes and not to spread a reputation with unfounded accusations. And it's not fair. Again, like if, if my name got onto a list of you got to keep an eye on this guy because two people have bad, na- bad games against me and whinged, like the if that's over two events, I've played ten people, two people complain, eight people had great games, didn't say anything. Like that's but it's the two names that it's the two people that whinge that have now got my name on this blacklist. Yeah. I think communication mean, is like <laughs> Yeah. <I know. laughs> communication just solves so many of these issues. Like see if you're playing a game mm. and you've got a unit in combat, just say how many attacks, work it out. Combat res, use dice, count up so both players can see. Uh, for yeah. your your dice, like your casting, explicitly say at the start, I've got six magic dice to your four. I'm going to use four dice on this one, two dice on that one, and it yeah. just it stops people picking up that extra dice, or you know, just ends yeah. all conflict and ask questions if you're not sure. There's a couple of players who maybe chance their armor get, especially against newer players, and I mean, there's also an issue of sticking to time. Like, we had three-hour rounds. Um, I know that two-and-a-half-hour rounds is a bit more tight, and it sometimes is a struggle, especially if yeah. there's, like, long protracted combats. You, you might struggle to get it totally finished in two-and-a-half hours. But really, three should be enough room most of the time. Obviously, there's certain instances where games just go on. But just be, like, open and communicate, and especially to the TOs, don't exclude the TOs. Because actually, from a TO perspective, if you get me over and you're like, right, we're going into turn six just now, we might struggle to both get turn six in, but I want to make sure that we both do. Would you mind if we just take an extra five minutes and finish the game? I, I can't imagine many TOs will turn around to say to you and go, absolutely not, dice down when that clock finishes. And you know what? See, if he does do that, you're both adults. Just say hmm. that that's it, you're not playing a turn six. Yeah, that's the other thing to remember about all of this, that it's still a game of toys, like, like Paul yeah. said, on the chin. And like, yeah, if I'm playing someone who, like, I don't know, who needs that ego boost to cheat at this game where we're playing with toy soldiers, then there is maybe a part of me that goes like, that's pretty sad, buddy. I'm just going to let you have this one. Maybe you're dealing with some stuff. Maybe you're going through something that means you really need this win because you're cheating at toy soldiers here. So that's not that's not normal. Yeah. Maybe there's something else happening. One thing we shouldn't do is like just go, go into things like social media 
and spread it there because one, the person isn't there to defend themselves. Mm. It's not particularly fair. And also, if you've got an issue with someone, right, if you have a really shit game, either go to the TO, which I think is a good idea, and just say, look, it might just be me, but I feel that that maybe wasn't, you know, the most <laughs> enjoyable game. Or say to the person at the end of the game, like, again, you're both adult, say, look, I, I didn't really find that as fun because I felt you were a bit cagey. I don't know if that's maybe just how you play, but, like, was there anything I did to make you that way? Because he might feel that you were being really cagey. Yeah, and that's why fun. he acted like that. So I think so much of it is just don't be dicks to each other. <laughs> I think that's, that's how to social media with Andy. It's just don't, don't be dicks. Yeah, don't it's, be. It's, see, like anyone that comments yeah. on news articles, like no one reads them. Stop commenting. <laughs> right? <laughs> Theresa May is not reading them. Jeremy Corbyn is not reading them. Stop it. You're wasting everyone's time. I just want to go on the internet to look at cat. Damn it. <laughs> so very quickly, I think this changes as a teal because sometimes as a teal you're put in an awkward situation where it's essentially one person's word against another. And again, 100% hand need to stress this. This is like the minority of the minority cases where sometimes this t- comes up. But I feel that, I feel like I'm quite a harsh TO in terms of, um, lists and times and things within reason. Mm-hmm. Like, obviously, like your example, it wouldn't have been fair to call the game when I came over. So that's why I let Tim finish off because you were both happy with that. You both agreed with it. There was no issue. But I don't understand how people can't get a list in, in the correct format. Sort your fucking <laughs> lives out. Pisses yeah. me off. That, that, uh, yeah, I am all for enforcement of list penalties. Oh, Jesus. I, I tried to do as well as, like, you can put out the pack online where you can copy and paste this list and then just change it so the words are now your list and then send it back to me. But no, people don't do that. Not even that. I'm literally rubbing my eyes now. Like, oh, it's, it's rage-inducing. And yeah. you know who you are because you continuously do it. <laughs> do the same thing. <laughs> Um, but when it comes to stuff like this, I think the TOs are sometimes put in a difficult position because they're kind of, they're looked like they're expected to do something. Like, you don't want to get into the, the way of, unless someone's been a complete dick, like there has been in the past, where someone's been absolutely outrageous or blatantly cheating, then you need to step in and say, look, this isn't acceptable. Right? This game's not happening anymore. You don't want to, you obviously that's the absolute last resort. So you kind of want, I wouldn't say exclude TOs from it because if there is an issue, the TO's job is to mediate. But at the same time, like, just remember you're both adults. If someone's being a dick, just say, look, why are you being a dick? Yeah, exactly. And as a TO, it's really hard as well because you can come over and you, you can only take what's on the table. Like, if, if there's a unit that's in a position and one guy's saying, oh, but it's not in that position because it was moved. And it's like, well, how do I know which one of you is telling the truth or not? Even if I, the TO, know the two individuals, know the one who's an absolute saint, know the other one is somebody who everybody whinges about, that's unfair for me to just go, well, previously you know, I've heard the whispers, so that means that you must be the wrong one. You can yeah. only take what the table. But if I ever were to catch anybody like blatantly cheating, like I'm walking around and I overhear somebody like misleading somebody, I, so I used to be a teacher, so this is something that really presses my buttons. They will be immediately banned from every future event. I have zero tolerance for that kind of Laying down the law. No, and I, I think that's the way to do it because again, I, 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 we, I run a regular one-day tournament, and it's super casual. Like, you know, it's really, uh, it's, it's just a structured gaming day. But people did have a habit of not finishing their games, and I just said, right, here's what's going to happen, guys. At the end of the time, I'm going to come over to the table. You're going to tell me what turn it is. I'm just going to guess what's going to happen with the rest of the game and assign the points that way, which is a horrible way to end game. Yeah. So people started finishing their games on time. If you're going to have a threat, make it a big one and enforce it. 
and then you won't have to again. I think, obviously, as the CEO, like anything that comes up on the table, you've obviously got to try and manage on a case-by-case basis. So yeah. I don't think you can really have like a kind of blanket rule. Like as you said, like if, because we always have three of our rounds, especially now that I've been to other events where they, I, I know I can play in two and a half hours and finish all six turns. I find it really hard to give people more time. And as a TO, you're so busy. You've got other things to do. You've got to get the points in. You've got to check them. You've got to, you've got to get the pairings done as fast as possible because people want to know who they're going to play. So I've got less sympathy for people that can't finish. Like I would rather make the point at the beginning of the event and just say at the end of the three hours or however long the rounds are going to be, it's diced down and you have to get your scores in within five minutes because I don't want to have to go around and police five games that have gone over because people want to still play. And I get that people still want to play, but tough because I'm the type of person that I want to get my pairing for my next game as soon as possible so I can go over to the game and get the table set up, talk to my opponent and start early if I can. And then I get more time that way rather than wanting to play after the time has run out. Yeah. So I would rather just say to people, stice down after the three hours. I don't really care if there's a combat and you're halfway through it and someone isn't going to get their turn. Mm. You guys have been playing together for three hours. It's really harsh, but I'm sorry. You've got a whole event to manage and I can't go around and, and waste my time basically doing this. And I think that's fair enough. Everyone's an adult. I don't think it's a particular sour thing to say. And if you make the point of saying it at the beginning of the day, that's, mm-hmm. you've basically laid down the law, right? Like, that's what's just going to happen. So I think things like that, I'm okay with being stricter about. Whereas there'll be other things that I'm a little bit more casual about, like painting requirements and stuff like that. Like, I'm not as strict on compared to other people, I would think. I'll have the bugbears. Like Andy's super doesn't like the lists. You you seem to be fine with like painted stuff, but don't mind people running over. I'm the kind of person who'll be like, that model's not painted. You were told to bring painted models. Off it goes, kind of thing. Like, it's so funny how arbitrary it gets so quickly. Yeah. yeah. So this is a thing as well. So this actually came up. I was talking to Martin and Michael today uh, from our club, and Michael used unpainted models at the tournament. I didn't clock this. He had a unit of uh, demis that weren't painted because he, he ran out of time. If he'd asked me, I have multiple units of demis painted ready that you could have easily borrowed, but you didn't. And actually, if I'd clocked that, I would have said to him, that's not acceptable. So yeah. you're going to have to fix that. Because it's it's a two-way street as well. And like I was talking to Martin about the painting requirements, because Martin is very... Some of the things going about in the scene, quite rightly, he takes exception to, because he's like, that's... No one's bothered their arse there. And mm. I've got this really nicely painted army that I've spent hours and hours on, and you're I'm paying to come here to play a, a fun game, and I think a fun game is when two nicely painted armies play against each other. So you're yeah. kind of almost cheating me out of my fun because you've not put effort in. I agree with that 100% in spirit, but I think there's real life mitigation that you know sometimes makes that difficult, and people don't have the same skill levels, blah blah blah, which is why yeah. the the set level is like the minimums is what they are just now is what they are because no one can agree on what the the level should be. So we mm. have the minimum. I mean, people yeah, but... do take the piss, and people <laughs> know when they take the piss, but got to have some line there. You mentioned the communication. If it's in the list pack and it's this, then I have absolutely no issues with anybody, excuse me, kind of rules lawyering around it, as it were. Like, it's it's kind of like if I've put out a, like a, a really comp- comprehensive way to like behave at my event kind of thing, then you need to follow that. 
but that also means that you need that you're like allowed to kind of try to break it a little bit. You know, people would do this with comp back in the day that you'd have a TO that would come up with a comp pack. And part of the fun was trying to figure out around it and, and how to break that and everything. So somebody says, oh, it's three paint, three colors painted at a minimum. Great. That means I can do this. And yeah, that's fine because that's all I want. Three colors painted at a minimum. If I want shading, I want highlighting, I want stuff, I'm going to put it in the event pack. You know, Paul mentioned that he was quite strict. I love a strict TO as long as it's been clear and obvious what's coming up beforehand. Yeah, because you can't really complain at that point. One thing, it's just like a, a bit of a PSA. It's, it's always, guys, like always respect the TO. That, that it's 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 not like football. You can't crowd around the rep, the umpire and, and have him you know, just badger to people. It's like rugby. That this man needs to be shown some like respect here. That the final word is the, the TO's word is final. Then remember these aren't professionals. Like the TO hasn't you know isn't really making any money from this. It's done because he lugs the hobby and because he wants to put on an event for someone. Give them like a little bit of understanding that they're having to make tough decision after tough decision. They're having a hard time. They're under a lot of stress. Don't whinge and complain at their face. Like don't. Don't make their life any harder than it actually needs to be. Please just, yeah, listen, listen and respect the TO. And if you didn't like the way that they ran their event, don't go to the next one. Like, it's a really easy way of showing your displeasure. Don't start a big rant on Twitter. Don't start a big Barney in the middle of the hall. Like, just don't show up at the next one. That's a nice and easy way of solving your problems for both of you. So there we go, Mal. That was a super question. And basically, our conclusion is don't be dicks to each other. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Well, we've hit the two-hour target, which is a rarity for Bad Gear Radio, so congratulations, both of you. Do we have any final final thoughts on anything we've discussed, Tom? Anything you want to add before we wrap up? UD aren't that good. People just don't have a play against them. Mm. <laughs> if you uh, disagree, uh, start a rant on Twitter. We'll follow. <laughs> I was about to say, I've already started giving up my Twitter thing, so this is, this is like this is me setting up a nice read next time I have to go to the loo, <laughs> and I'm doing now. <laughs> You're not, you're not going to the loo right now, right? No, I've been on the toilet the whole time. Okay, cool. I keep eating, though, so there's fuel kind of going down. Oh, that's really... like human centipede. That's... Oh. Yeah, one man human centipede. Oh. Uh, Paul, any final thoughts? Just to say thanks to you and Ed for putting the event on. It was really good. Um, I'm not going to lie, it was mostly Ed. I'll, I'll take the credit, like, but it was mostly Ed. Well done, Ed. I'm just going to tweet you now, just the word congratulations. Well done. And it all makes sense when you listen to this podcast. There you go. If, if it listens. If he listens, this would be like a test. <laughs> Friendships will be burned. No, it was a great event. The events are always good, and that's just a testament to the scene and, and the guys that make the effort to come up. And just to say thanks as well to like people like Tom and, and Tim that are coming up from, you know, down south. It's, it's a big investment in time and money, so it's always good to get more people in the, the club and meet new people, play against new armies and stuff. So, no, it was a great weekend. Really enjoyed it. Yeah, fantastic. I would just like to echo Paul there and say thank you to everyone that came up, especially people that travelled so far. And thank you to our regular guys like Durham Boys for making the effort and coming up and supporting us. It's hugely appreciated. We couldn't do it without you. Uh, massive thank you to our sponsors. So we were sponsored by uh, Deep Cut Studios, Cromlick, Mirce Miniatures and uh, Warbases. Again, we couldn't do the events that we do without you guys, so thank you very much. Fantastic Mills, uh, Gary for making the, the trophies, which were exceptional. Just a massive thank you for putting the effort in and making it so good. Uh, thank you, Ted, for doing most of the organising and allowing me to take all the glory. Which is <laughs> 90% of why I play the hobby. If you have a fantastic question like Mal did, you can get us on Twitter at Scottish uh, Ninth Age. You can get us on the forum. I am Lost Cause. Paul is Space Goblin. Or you can send us a cheeky wee email uh, at Scottish uh, Scottish Wildlands at gmail.com. Nailed it. Nice. 
Excellent. So finally, congratulations again, Tom. Uh, we yeah, expect yeah. that you'll be back up to defend your title next year. Absolutely. Wild horses can keep me away. Of course. Got another event this year. I'll come up in like three months' time. Yeah, so we should have Strife, which is our singles event, at some point. Um, and then we will be back with Siege at the end of the year. When exactly Siege will be will depend on if I get this PhD done on time. Uh, it might be slightly <laughs> later in the year if things go the way they're going. But we will be back with events later on and we'll keep you all posted. In terms of upcoming events, there's still tickets available for the Durham event. So if you're North England slash Scotland and you want to go, it's going to be a super event. Very chill. Like Everyone that's going, it's going to be a laugh. Uh, the master himself, Nav, has already signed up. So if you want to kiss daddy on the lips, this is your chance. <laughs> and thank you to Tom for coming on the, the show again. We'll get you back on some point in the future. And thank you all for listening. And we'll catch you in the next one. Yeah. Take it easy, guys. Uh, bye, guys.